AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for March 1st, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today we're joined online by Jim Clausing. Uh, hi, Jim. How you doing? Good. Good to be back after a couple of weeks. Yeah, good to have you back. On the couch, we have uh, Matt Kaiser with us as well. How's it going? Uh, thanks for being here. And uh, I'm John Hogeboom, of course. And we're going to jump into the first story. And uh, this is one you're looking at, Jim. Uh, and I'm kind of surprised. SSL v2 is still out there, it sounds like, and there's another vulnerability. Can you give us the uh, details on this one and what it's all about? This one is getting a fair amount of attention today uh, because the OpenSSL folks released uh, some patches today. But basically, the issue is a vulnerability that they're calling Drown, uh, the folks who discovered it. The issue is if a certificate is used for both TLS and SSL v2, if you can observe some of the TLS traffic and then generate some SSL v2 traffic, you can break the encryption. As you said, SSL v2, we've been telling people to get off of SSL v2 for a number of years. We've been telling them to get off of SSL v3 for a, you know, for a while now too. Everybody should be on TLS. Folks you know, did a, a survey and discovered that about 17% of uh, HTTPS websites out there uh, still support SSL v2. They still allow it. And if you add in the cases where folks may use the same certificate uh, for other things like IMAP or mm -hmm. SMTP or POP3 or, or whatever, and where they may still support SSL v2 in those protocols, that adds another 16%. So they're, these guys are figuring that fully a third of uh, the HTTPS websites out there are actually vulnerable to this. So as I said, in order to take advantage of this, the bad guys have to be able to observe some TLS traffic and then generate some SSL v2 traffic and if they take advantage of one of the vulnerabilities that OpenSSL folks fixed today, they can pretty much do it in real time. Mm. They can man in the middle this attack. They, it, they can get it down to about a minute to, to crack it. If, they, if, uh, the SSL, or if the OpenSSL patches are applied, but you still have sites running... TLS and SSL v2, they figured it takes about eight hours using Amazon EC2 you know, cloud nodes to do the decryption. Um, so this this is a big deal if if you've got sites that still have SSL v2 enabled someplace. So the the key is you should have turned off SSL v2 in all your Apache and IIS and Nginx websites a long time ago, but you also need to make sure that you've turned them off for your 
IMAP-S, your POP3-S, your SMTP postfix, for example, or send mail, whatever. You need to make sure you've got SSL v2 and SSL v3 turned off in all of those places as well. So it is a, a bit of a concern that the that you know a third of the websites out there might still be vulnerable. But if you've been vigilant at turning off SSL, you know, or or if you can get in there and turn off SSL, it's not something that you really need to panic about. You just need to make sure you've got it configured properly to turn off those old obsolete encryption protocols. So that's an interesting one. And you did make a good point there about other services besides web traffic. So that's something that people need to be conscientious of. It's not just your web servers that could use SSL. It could be your uh, pop S. And I guess the, the thing I was thinking about with this one is this really is something that site owners need to do something with. Um, they need to address this, like you said, disable SSL v2. While they're in there, they might want to disable SSL v3 as well. Uh, if you can, yep. it's not going to break anything. Hopefully it shouldn't. But I was also thinking in my head, oh, what if I was just on my browser, if I just said, you know, tried to do some mitigation to not talk to servers that support SSL v2, but that might actually not work in your favor because it sounds like, and we did a quick study really quickly here before the show, like you said, there's 17% of servers out there still support SSL v2 and uh, a quick, you know, looking through Shodan showed us some over 2 million servers, 1.4 in the United States. So there's quite a density of them out, still out there. I didn't really inspect them to see what they are, but uh, I think more of the, the more notable web sites um, probably do not have this enabled still SSL v2, so you're probably okay there. But yeah, the, the other thing though, the, the, the right hand side of that graphic. Mm -hmm. that we've got up there, though, is even if the, the website itself only talks TLS, if they share that certificate with an SMTP server that allows SSL v2, you know, it's still, you can still break it. So that's, that's the key part is you need to turn it off everywhere. And if you're sharing the same certificate, which, you know, some folks do. They use yeah. the same, they buy one certificate and they use it for their website and for their mail server and for their, you know, pop server or their IMAP server. You need to make sure it's turned off all three places because if they can observe the TLS traffic to the web server and then generate the SSL v2 traffic against the, you know, the SMTP server, they can still get the keys so they can break the TLS encryption. Now, my understanding is that this doesn't expose the, the key stored on the server, but it does expose the key used for the session. It's a, it's a padding oracle attack. Did I understand that right? That's, that's my understanding, but I haven't made it all the way through the paper. Um, but that's, that's the way I read it, too. Okay. But it is one of those types of vulnerabilities where you do, or the attacker, would need to be able to inspect somebody else's traffic, yep. which... It's not necessarily trivial, but there are certain places where that could happen more easily. You know, in Wi-Fi hotspots and things like that, you could be coerced to go through something. Or if it's an open uh, and not even encrypted uh, Wi-Fi, it might be visible to a sideband person also on that Wi-Fi. So uh, that's, you know, where I would be cautious, I guess. Hotels, all places to be, especially 
careful about it. Right, right. All right. I wonder if somebody could make like a little widget that would just show me if the web server I'm currently at supports SSLv2. I'm sure somebody has something like that for Firefox. It'd be interesting to know, am I at a web server where it should get patched or something? Well, I think some of the browsers, maybe it was just Chrome, I think some of them stopped supporting certain certificate yes, security I, levels. I, yeah. I don't remember who does what, but I, I have noticed that as well with, um, I think Firefox is one of those ones where they were doing something to, to stop you from talking to certain older versions of SSL and whatnot. But yeah, they, they were certainly, uh, we talked about this last month sometime, they were, um, that all of the browsers are starting to, um, you know, not accept certificates that we're using SHA-1. All right, so slightly similar, but slightly different to what I was saying, okay. Uh, interesting one. So a good one to keep an eye out for. Again, I think this is more of an awareness thing to people. If you manage servers and services that use SSL, take a look and see if you're still supporting SSL v2 because you probably don't need to. Most modern stuff doesn't need to use uh, these old encryption schemes. So Right. Uh, and, and apply the patches from the open SSL folks that came out today. Right. As I said, that it, with without those patches the attack can be done in in pretty much real time as mm. opposed to taking eight hours so the patches will slow things down even if you still have ssl2 v2 out there right right okay good advice all right thanks so the next story uh that we have is one you were back to you jim where you were looking at uh regarding ransomware and wordpress but it wasn't exactly like I expected it was going to be. Um, it's a little twist on this one. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, this uh, this one, uh, I saw a couple of stories about this in the last week or so. Basically, CTB Locker was a family of Windows ransomware from 2014 that never got all that big, uh, never got as big as Crypto Wall or, or anything like that or Locky, or any of those. It was kind of unique in that it, it did its command and control through Tor. Um, well, it kind of had vanished from the, the scene. All of a sudden, in the last couple of weeks, um, the, the folks who did CTB Locker have come back in a big way. There is a new version for Windows, but the one that's that got my attention and that we're going to talk about a little bit here is the what the um, the creators are calling CTB locker for websites hmm. and basically what's going on here is they are um, compromising some WordPress sites now how they're doing that you know they're they're finding some other vulnerability there either you know it's unpatched for one of the recent security vulnerabilities or it's a bad plug-in or somehow getting into the WordPress sites. But once they get in there, they uh, ins they install this CTB locker for websites, which basically replaces the index.php or index.html, the, the home page, with the splash screen, hey, you know, we've got your website. And then uh, via a post request, it goes, uh, some PHP scripts wa start walking through 
the, the website and encrypting all of the pages. Yeah. And uh, in order to get it back, you have to pay 0.4 Bitcoin uh, if you do it within you know a certain amount of time or it doubles up to 0.8 if you waste too much time. And um, you can obviously then, if you pay the ransom, they'll give you the key to unlock, which is again a post request that goes through and then decrypts them all. It's even got a little the index that PHP that they replace with that says you know hey you've been hacked. Even has a little chat window where you can chat with the guys who have taken over your website mm-hmm. and. But it, you know, it, it encrypts it using AES, you know, 256. So it's not something trivial to, you know, to crack. This is serious, you know, encryption. It's not, you know, Joe's encryption function that he threw together. Right. Um, and they don't keep the keys on the on the server. They may still be in memory, you know, as long as it's as the encryption is going on, but it's not hidden in a file. So if you do get it hacked, you shouldn't be paying the ransom. Hopefully you've got good backups and hopefully you test your uh, disaster recovery processes. But yeah, this, this was a twist in that it wasn't just a website where, you know, that was distributing. This is the one of the first ones that I've seen where they actually, um, you know, encrypt the pages of the website and hold the the website owner hostage. That's interesting. And like I said, it wasn't what I expected. I thought you were going to say that it was using WordPress to facilitate as a kind of drive-by exploit vector there to infect people who visit the website. But that's not really what's happening here. It's they're going in there, they're you know, uh, doing the same thing they would do to a Windows machine, encrypt all the files on your website, and then hold your ransom. So I guess one of the things I was wondering, and I hadn't looked at any of this, but it'd be interesting to take a look at Google. Like, if you knew what that web page, mm-hmm. that index.php with some text on there about how they, they've encrypted the files on your website, you could probably do a quick Google search to kind of see how many sites are out there that are compromised or at least that Google is interested. Yeah, and one of the one of the stories um, that I saw on this, they had actually done that and at the time um, there were only only about a hundred. Okay. But you know, if you haven't been keeping your WordPress up to date, uh, or if you've got plugins that you haven't been keeping up to date, or you have, you know, weak passwords for your admin any of those could be used to compromise the site, and you know, once it's compromised, then then they can go ahead and you know do this to hold it hostage. So, well, you make a good point, and we've talked about this before on the show. Um, you know, having your own website, running some of these content management systems, there's a responsibility there that you're going to have to take the onus on, and make sure you keep your WordPress installation up to date. And any of the plugins that you have, make sure they're up to date and you don't have any kind of cobbled together plugins for WordPress from some, like you said, Joe, whatever, who just wrote this thing and isn't really patching it or updating when vulnerabilities are found. So um, you do have to keep on top of it, make sure that uh, 
your websites don't get hacked because chances are your website hosting provider isn't going to be looking at that for you. So don't think that, you know, in general, I don't know which who does and who doesn't, but in general, I think most do not do any kind of checking to see if you've been compromised or not, um, uh, or trying to prevent that from happening. So you do need to keep on top of your own software that you're running on there. Right. And keep on top of your backups. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And test to make sure that your backups are actually backing up. Like, make sure you've got a good copy on a regular basis. So it's good to exercise that procedure every now and then to make sure that you're just not assuming that it's been backing up for the past three years and you didn't really check and it hasn't been. So uh, it's always good to make sure that's really working. So the next one is it's book review time. So we talked about at the beginning of the year, maybe at the end of last year, that you were uh, Matt was going to try to give us uh, a review of a book uh, once a month, and you've got another one that you've read. So uh, what's uh, what's the book this month? So this one is Hiding from the Internet by Michael Basil. Michael Basil, people probably know him best as the um, the technical advisor to Mr. Robot, which is one of our oh, favorite okay, shows. Yeah. But he's also written a number of books. He teaches courses. The one that I read before this was uh, advanced, it was Open Source Intel Techniques, which was great, and it teaches you how to find people on the internet and all sorts of sources that you can use for that. This is sort of the counter book to that first book. You know, knowing that this information is out there, how would you prevent somebody from finding you? And this is, it's not just, you know, people who are paranoid, you know, people who are public figures or people who get doxxed by groups like Anonymous who have an interest in getting their personal details off the internet so people can't find them and use them against them. So I took that as my, you know, if, if I were somebody who were famous enough to worry about this sort of thing, what kind of steps would I take in order to keep myself off the internet um, in terms of a, a presence? Right, having some kind of like profile on the internet right. or your, whatever, your digital footprint, I guess they would call it, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So the, uh, the first part of the book is probably the best eye-opener, and that's the doing a, a basic survey of what is there about you. And people probably have Google searched themselves before. That's part of it. Um, there's a number of data broker companies out there um, that you can request information from. They don't necessarily make it easy to get that information. Mm -hmm. So the first chapter is basically a list of companies, and here are the interfaces to each one. Some have websites, some have phone numbers. Some have email addresses. Some of them require you to print out a form, fill it out, and mail it to them uh, to re receive the information. Uh, it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. So, Well, they probably purposely make it difficult, right? Well, their bottom line is that they make money off of having this information about you and building a profile. So I can understand why they would, would want to make it hard for you to find out and then remove yourself from that database. There's a whole section in there about removing yourself from these databases as well, and that is you know, just as onerous as getting the information in the first place. Mm -hmm. The book has diff differing levels of difficulty, and I'm, I'm going to be upfront. There's a new version of the book that just came out in January. This is the second edition. The third edition is just out. I haven't read that one. Okay. Uh, but based on the table of contents that I saw on Amazon, it looks like there's some some new revisions, and I maybe I'll have to grab a copy of the the third edition. And, and right. Well, I imagine it's probably always evolving, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's it's an ongoing sort of. Maybe a struggle, I'd, I'd use that word. Right, right. Yeah. So there's, there's chapters in there that are probably appropriate for most people who have a, a casual interest in being less findable on the internet, you know, using um, maybe if you want to use Tor or Tails when you're, you're browsing, mm -hmm. maybe you want to set up secondary accounts for certain things, maybe you don't want to always use your primary email address, and you can set up a, a forwarding email address with several anonymization services. Those are things that most people can do. 
if you really want to get yourself out of the big databases, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of continued, it's a lifestyle change, I guess is the right way of saying that. Right. Because, um, and it, it gets into what I would say are probably gray areas for some people. Providing fake information, I mean, I'm, I'm, I grew up as a kid in the internet age. I know most people, when it asked, how old is your, what is your age at one of those age gates, you know, for the new video game? Mm -hmm. I would always say I was born in 1970. Um, but providing, you know, creating new personas for yourself is somewhat is addressed in this book. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of a decision I think most people will have to make whether it's worth it for them to start white, using white lies or maybe larger than white lies in order to remove themselves from this internet presence. Right, creating, right. there's some interesting tricks in there. I would encourage people to read them to, say, to see what some of these are because they involve different legal structures, different tactics you can use if you want to create, apparently you can create uh, a credit card, like a duplicate credit card for your existing account for some providers just by asking and saying, what, this is the name I want on it. I want Joe Nobody on the second card. It'll oh, have really? the same number but a different name. And that's sort of tied to your It's tied account. to your account. You can use it the regular, but it'll, it'll sort of provide a branch of information. Mm -hmm. And that's another interesting thing about the book is they talk about disinformation as if you can't get rid of it, if there's no way to convince a company to take your information offline, changing or creating alternate versions of that information is, is another option. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that the author talks about is using magazine subscription sites you know, if you, if you go out for mailings and I want to have, you know, a free copy of this magazine or a free copy of this magazine, you can sort of feed slightly differing information. So maybe you want John T. Hogaboom for this one and John P. Hogaboom for this one uh, okay. and James Hogaboom for this one. And you can start associating them with your address and then it's, it provides some chaff, I suppose. Right. So and you probably would be able to tell if you keep good records, if I use, you know, John T. Hogaboom for this one, mm -hmm. and now I start getting a bunch of junk mail to that one, I know that those guys gave up my address probably, or mm -hmm. however. No, that's actually, that's actually mentioned in the book, which is an interesting technique. So, you know, if you want to subscribe to Better Homes and Gardens, John B. Hogaboom is the one for that one, where, right. you know, you use right. the first letter or something like that. So it's, it's kind of, um, it was an eye-opener for me to read this book because of the amount of work that's involved in taking your, in, in, not only cleaning up your public profile, but also maintaining uh, that layer of anonymity with different sources. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that most people are going to be willing to do this, but for the people who really do, or think that they might have to, I think the lesson is you might want to start before you get into that situation. Now, if you're a public right. figure, or you're somebody who may be doxxed in the future because of the way that people perceive you online, you may want to read this book, pick it up and thumb through it and see, what can I do now in order to, to build out that wall? Right. So does he mention anything about like other third party services that I could go to and say, hey, I want you to go whatever, clean up or do this to for do all me? Because it sounds like it's a lot of work, right? I wonder if anybody's and started I was up thinking a business the same based thing. on that. This, I mean, the, what you learn from here is that it is an ever going, it's, it's a constant battle, a constant struggle to do it. And I think services to do this, I'm not aware of any, mm. but I think that they would do very well, even if they, all they did was buy this book and then provide this, the actions that are outlined in the book as a service to somebody, it would probably be valuable to a pretty right. fair number of people. And does, does it talk about things beyond just your internet presence, but like you mentioned mail, mm -hmm. um, how to control some of that aspect or get off of these uh, lists and whatnot where you get mm -hmm. all this junk mail all of a sudden. 
um, and or like the phone stuff where, what do they call that database where you want to get off the, the do not call me do not call, or whatever yeah. that stuff, which doesn't seem to work very well, <laughs> but uh, I still get phone calls. But in any event, does he address any of that other type of kind of well, peripheral some, stuff? There's some, some interesting stuff. And I, I personally assume that if it's in a database, um, the database is on the internet. It's probably not a true assumption, but it's, it's close right. enough to reality. But there are things in there that he talks about if you want to start making large purchases, if you want to buy a car or a home, there are legal structures you can use uh, to anonymize that purchase. So you buy it as an LLC, right, you right. Know, it's, it shows up in databases as owned by the LLC and not an individual. Right. Things like that are discussed in the book. Okay, um, interesting. Yeah, I've seen people do that um, on occasion, so interesting. And things like setting up a post office box and setting up yourself a, a Google Mail account, a Google uh, Voice account, sorry. Uh, for phones, so if you want to, you know, have a, a phone number that you give out widely, and then it, it just becomes a voicemail box where you can sort of screen who talks to you, mm -hmm. you may want to do that. So oh, okay, oh, it's interesting. Um, I hadn't really, you know, it's so hard to kind of once you're, you know, like us, we work in the internet space so much that having zero digital footprint is not just not a reality unless, mm -hmm. like you said, you really work hard at it. Well, I mean, and that's another thing that I was thinking as I was reading this, that I'm reading it for the show, and there are how many videos with our faces in them on YouTube? Yeah, with you our never names. be able to. And that's, it's, it's, <laughs> you can do so much. I don't know that this book is going to completely wipe your existence off the internet, uh, but it will at least allow you to make decisions to control it. Right, right. I think is the, is the right way to make that right. statement. All right, cool. Well, it sounds like a good read, and um, I guess people should check it out, so... Uh, thanks for bringing that to our attention. All right, uh, so let's uh, jump into the internet weather, and there actually is something interesting in the internet weather this week. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit, but it's not on this particular chart. Uh, so this first uh, graph is the most pro ports by sheer volume, what's been scanned the most. No big um, surprises here. As usual, 23 TCP Telnet is at the top. 53413 UDP, which is the Netis router vulnerability. We've talked about it on the show quite a bit. 22 TCP SSH, kind of similar to the 23 TCP scanning, looking for just brute force password guessing, uh, working their way into those types of systems. 1900 UDP is a simple service discovery protocol that usually attempts to identify reflection points that they can use as part of distributed denial of service attacks. 443 TCP is your HTTPS. 53 UDP, actually we have a chart on this in the other section, which we'll look at uh, a little bit later on. But that's your DNS, uh, usually looking again for uh, more distributed reflection uh, denial of service attack points uh, that you can use as part of your attack. 445 TCP is your Windows file sharing, 80 TCP your web servers, and we've been seeing 1911 TCP in the top 10, it's in there again, which is interesting, but we're pretty sure, at least from all the activity I've seen, this is research activity. This is that Niagara, Tritium Fox, building automation. Um, there's been a lot of interest, it seems, lately in identifying building automation systems that are being exposed to the internet. I'm not saying that that's what, you know, I mean, obviously someone's looking for that here, and that's it's part of their research. But we do know that there's been cases where building automation systems have been inadvertently exposed to the internet, and people just don't know. Like you said, you know, you put this thing in there, you assume it's secure, it's hooked up to the internet, and it, maybe it controls the, the heating ventilation for your, your, your business or whatever, but 
it's exposed on the internet and anybody can log into it because it's got a default password or something. Anyway, people have been looking for that a lot. It's one of those ones that is an interesting area. And actually we had a guest on, gee, I want to say like last month or uh, maybe two months ago that really worked in the industrial control space and discussed that. So it's an interesting topic. Is it the guys from, uh, from Bayshore? Yes, yes, it is from Bayshore. Uh, so that's a, we should go back and look at that show because we discussed that quite a bit. Uh, and then 3389 TCP is the remote desktop protocol. That's also um, similar to your Telnet and SSH scanning, trying to gain access to mostly Windows desktops that are running remote desktop protocol so that they can use them for whatever they want to use them for. Uh, there's a couple of worms that hang out on that port as well, trying to compromise via remote desktop protocol. Uh, so I just have one picture here for the probing activity, and it's, um, it's a long one. It's a 120-day picture of the Netis router activity. And what I kind of wanted to show here is to the left of the big spike, it really was pretty kind of low. You know, we're seeing maybe 50, it's like 50 million per hour scan flows it was peaking at. And then somebody really got busy with this <laughs> scanning activity back in late November of 2015. And that's where it jumped up to like 750 million scan flows per hour here. But since then, you've got a botnet that's kind of been scanning here off and on, and it's kind of been a steady trend. It's a little bit of an upward tick, but maybe it's kind of leveled off at this point over the past, I would say, February timeframe. It seems pretty level. But there's a lot of devices scanning here, it seems like. Well, obviously, it's in the number two slot, uh, even in the scan sources. So that's one of those things, if you have a Netis router, you should take a look and uh, either patch it or replace it, because I think most of them are kind of, you know, your home router, Soho type of small office, home office thing, or whatever they call it, uh, type of router. So it's one to keep an eye on that you'd want to take care of. So here is uh, the most sources probing. And this one had an interesting surprise that I have yet to really explain fully because uh, it just happened. But let's take a look at what we have here. So obviously the big elephant in the room is 4028 TCP in the uh, number nine position there. It had moved up 2,075 positions, which is a pretty significant rise from uh, where it had been, which is basically nobody was really scanning this for the most part. And all of a sudden it, it jumped up quite a bit and there's quite a few sources doing it. So we're gonna take a look at a chart on that in a minute. But otherwise, really no big surprises. Telnet, 23 TCP and 53413. Uh, UDP, the Netis router and Telnet, they both account for at least 50% of all scanning activity in terms of scan sources uh, engaged in scanning on those ports out on the internet. That's what we've been seeing historically for quite a while now, many, many months. 445 TCP is in there as well. That's one that's always kind of been in the top 10 or even probably even in the top five for quite a long time. The other ones, well, 53 UDP, I did take a chart of this one. It moved up 10 positions. We're gonna go take a look at why, which might be a little interesting, one to keep an eye on. So that's DNS again. So somebody's scanning for DNS. We talked about on the previous chart, but now we're getting a lot of people scanning for DNS, which means that there's probably a botnet or something doing it, or there's a set of machines and mass doing it. And we're gonna discuss that a little bit more in a second. 27015 UDP is probably benign because that is the Valve Steam gaming port, uh, which can kind of manifest itself to look like scanning when it's not always. Although, like we, I think we discussed, it can be used in reflection attacks, but I don't know that we actually see it being used that greatly. 
Because I don't think it gives you a lot of amplification, but I'm not, I haven't really researched it fully. So let's take a look at the elephant in the room, 4028 TCP. So this is an interesting one. You can see to the left of the chart here, this is a 15 day picture, so it's a pretty short time frame. Around February 28th here, so really just two days ago, we started to see all at once about 2,500 sources start to scan for this port, 4028 TCP. So I took a look at what these, we generate these scan volumetric reports when these types of activities all of a sudden spike up. We have an automated system that says, well, this looks interesting. Let me go try to identify what's going on here or at least profile this activity. So I looked at what the profile is that our automated reporting showed. Uh, first of all, Brazil, Philippines, Thailand, and Iran, which I thought was interesting, are the four countries that have the predominant amount of this activity in terms of these 2,500 scan sources we're seeing per hour. We're gonna take a look at that as well, a geographic chart of it. The other interesting component here is the scanning is in blocks of slash 16 net blocks. So I gave you a little example on the picture here. What that means is if they're gonna scan, or at least the way we see them scanning, if they're gonna scan 127.127.0.0 slash 16, they're gonna basically do .0.0 and go all the way to 255.254, scan the entire slash 16, and then move on to the next one, I guess. Uh, so they're, whoever's issuing instructions to this botnet is doing it in slash 16 blocks. I see all of them are doing it exactly that same way, which is not normal. I mean, I shouldn't say it's not normal. It's not what we usually see. Uh, so whoever's, usually it's very randomized. They just all kind of scan all over the place. Whereas this is whoever's issuing commands to the bots are doing it in very aggregated blocks of slash 16, which is interesting. The other element of this that I noticed was the ephemeral ranges. So when a machine makes a connection to another machine, so if Matt was a web server and I was gonna make a connection to him on port 80, I have what's called an ephemeral port, which is the port, my source port that I'm gonna make a connection to. And that's randomly or it's automatically assigned by the system. The ephemeral ranges um, that we're seeing for this scanning activity is between 32,768 to 61,000, which is absolutely 100% Linux. It's some Linux variant. So that's another interesting component. I also reference in the chart here, if you're not familiar with Team Cymru, uh, they have a website and they actually have a nice chart of ephemeral port ranges. So I thought that might be interesting to viewers to go take a look at that because it kind of shows you what ranges different uh, operating systems will use for their ephemerally assigned ports when they make connections, uh, which can help you identify or fingerprint when somebody's connecting to you or you're looking at this type of scanning activity, what type of uh, operating system it is. I guess the last aspect of this is that you had found some reporting, and I think you m there might be something to this. It's a little speculative, but uh, Matt had dug up that uh, back in 2014, it was suggested, I think on a SANS article, somebody had done some research that there was some 4028 TCP scanning and it was tied to Light Hydra or Hydra, I can't remember, Hydra. which is, um, it is an embedded Linux uh, botnet kit, right? So to speak, in layman's terms. Uh, might be related, I don't know, but what I can say is if it's the profile, right? We've got these Linux embedded devices. I'm pretty sure they are embedded devices of a Linux nature, what we're seeing here. So it's possible that it's Hydra is in play, but it's not like I tried to really dig into the scan sources that are doing this, but some of the things are aligning there that it's probably something like that. 
Here is a picture of the geographic snapshot of what we see. So I grabbed uh, 1,105 addresses from one of the scan reports that we had here. You can see that there's some definite concentrations in Brazil here. U.S. is very light, which makes me think that it's some sort of home router or something that is deployed more so in these countries than it is in the U.S. or even Europe, maybe. But I don't know what that is yet, so maybe we'll find out as the weeks or months are unfold here. Maybe other people will do some research and figure out what's going on here. Iran is another hotspot, which I thought was interesting. We don't typically see a lot of sourced, uh, activity sourcing out of Iran from a scanning nature or in general not certainly botnet related, or at least not in my recent memory have I seen any. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, as well as Thailand here uh, is another bright yellow spot of concentration. And then Philippines is another uh, bright concentration here as well. So uh, interesting picture because they're very concentrated in those regions. The other dots we have on the chart here are very sparse, like one or two counts, whereas these other concentrations are in the hundreds out of these 1,100 addresses that we pulled here. So one to keep an eye on, we'll see what becomes of that. Other than that, I'm not quite sure what it's all about, but somebody's obviously scanning for that. And I don't think there's any well-known real port that 4028 TCP is used for. It's registered to something, but I, oh, is it, it was unremarkable when I looked it up. Yeah, so. I'm not quite sure. So we'll, I guess we'll find out hopefully, um, like I said, as time goes on. So the next chart we have here is the scan source activity on 23TCP Telnet. We take a look at this a lot. And I did um, a two-year chart on this. This is a really long chart. It was kind of because I wanted to show a long-term trend here. What this kind of shows is there are a lot of people doing 23TCP scanning back in the 2014 timeframe. We would see peaks up around the 60,000 uh, scan sources per hour. Uh, and then there was a big drive towards the end or beginning of 2015, where it you know, peaked out at 150 scan sources per hour. But then it's really turned into this very steady drive where you've just got this continuous scanning from like April of 2015 onward until today, where you just got a very persistent, regular amount of scanning. Uh, which makes me think that there's probably, you know, we know that from our investigation, we've seen it's a lot of these uh, home routers, security camera DVRs, these Internet of Things devices, Internet of Insecure Things devices. So they're probably acting as opposed to someone telling them as a botnet, I want you to go scan this range now, and you go scan this range now. It's probably more of, hey, you guys just keep scanning <laughs> and just keep doing it forever uh, and report on to me what you find out. So, because it just is a very continuous type of activity here. It doesn't really seem to, you know, rise and fall down to low levels. It just stays at a pretty relatively high level all the time. And then we did talk about uh, DNS, 53 UDP, jumped up 10 positions in the chart. This was one that I had to take a double look at because it's kind of interesting. You can see a couple of things in this chart. First off, February 23rd, and this is only a 15-day picture, by the way. But in February 23rd, you can see that there was an elevated kind of scan, a little hump here in the chart, but it's very low. It's kind of hard to see because we had this gigantic spike, I guess, yesterday. And when I took a look at this, it actually looks like scanning to me. Uh, sometimes our algorithm gets a little confused if you have a scan source that tries to DDoS a large address block, right? Because they're trying to whatever instead of targeting one IP, they try to target a sweep of a whole range. 
and we can sometimes get confused whether that was really scanning or DDoS. That's not really what was happening here, but it's a lot. So this is 32,000 scan sources. When I looked at them, they looked like they were really scanning. So I need to probably take a close. I only looked at it briefly this morning uh, while I was putting the charts together. But usually this is going to be someone, again, trying to do some reconnaissance, try to identify what are the DNS servers out there that I could use um, as candidates for reflection activity uh, as part of my DDoS attack later on. Not necessarily that this was part of a DDoS, but that they might want to collect a list together and use it in the future. And then more recently today, we actually see that there's been some, to a lesser degree, but still pretty elevated around the 5,000 scan sources per hour activity, uh, also scanning for this. So it's interesting, probably one to keep an eye on. Uh, and I'd like to go take a look. This happened all in a single hour, which made me also think, well, maybe this was an attack against somebody and we actually confused it in our data. But I don't, it didn't look like it was when I looked more closely at it. It looks like it's really scanning activity. So it's interesting. That's the show for today. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. Uh, you can also find ATT Threat Track on the AT&T Tech channel, uh, YouTube and iTunes. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. I'd like to thank you, Matt. Uh, thanks, Jim, for joining us again. And uh, I'm John Hogelbaum. We'll be back next week uh, with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.